Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for April 7th, 2017. I'm Brian Cardell, happy to welcome you to another edition of our program, Your Source, each Friday for insight from practitioners, jurists, and academics on all manner of appellate law issues. We have a real treat today. We welcome to the program Justice Arthur Gilbert, who has presided over Division 6 of the 2nd Appellate District for almost 20 years now. And for even longer, he's contributed a, a monthly column to the Daily Journal, suffused with wit and humor and his take on the law as it develops. He's here with us today to share that humorous and mirthful perspective on the law, on the judicial trade, and on the best appellate practices that appellate counselors should bring to bear in his courtroom and when filing briefs to it. Before we get to my conversation with Justice Gilbert, I should remind you that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. With no further preamble, then, I give you my, my conversation with Justice Arthur Gilbert. Tremendously honored now to welcome to the podcast a, a longtime mainstay of the California appellate court system, presiding justice of the 6th Division of the 2nd Appellate District, Justice Arthur Gilbert. Justice Gilbert, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. So you've been a long time justice in the California appellate system, and also I know listeners might be very familiar with you for the columns that you've contributed to our paper for now almost 30 years, all uh, full of discourses on on law and, and things related to the law, and, and certainly always full with uh, quite a bit of whimsy and, and humor. So we've uh, enjoyed those. But let's start back um, before you're writing your columns and before you're on the appellate bench. I know you your first job in the law was with the, the city attorney's office in Los Angeles. What uh, What were you doing there? Well, in the city attorney's office, uh, we tried, um, actually, we, we tried misdemeanors. Uh, and I went with, I went to the office. A friend of mine was an attorney there. And I wasn't even sure whether I wanted to practice law, frankly, uh, when I got out of law school. And, uh, I, uh, was looking around for something and I had interviewed various places and going with a big firm and being in a little cubicle just didn't appeal to me. And a friend of mine was at the city attorney's office and he said, hey, you get to try cases and it's a lot of fun. So I walked down, I went down there and watched him uh, try a few cases or try a case uh, or two. Uh, and I was, it would look like a lot of fun. So I applied and uh, went through an interview process and they hired me. So I suddenly became a deputy city attorney. And at that time, Johnny Cochran was in the office. And Johnny Cochran and I became very close friends. And uh, we, were t uh, we used to run the master calendar court together. And we just had a great time. And, uh, one of, and the bailiff was Julian Dixon, who became a very well-known congressperson. He was the head of the ethics committee and a very uh, respected member of, the, uh, of Congress. And we were all buddies. And we all hung out together and, uh, you know, socialized. And so I really enjoyed uh, the, my, my tenure there. I was only there a couple of years, but it was a lot of fun. And I got the feeling of uh, what it's like to try a case. Do you recall what it was like working with uh, Mr. Cochran and if, whether he had sort of perfected the signature style he came to be, be known for? It's a good point. He was a terrific trial lawyer then. And he was fearless. I remember Melvin Belli, of all people, tried one of the cases in the city attorney's office because it had uh, civil implications and he was involved in a civil suit. I think it was a false advertising case or something. Uh, but anyway, Johnny said, oh, I'll wipe the floor with him. I remember <laughs> he was so cocky. And uh, 
And I watched the trial, and boy, he was just quick on his feet and so relaxed and could relate to a jury so well. So he had that gift at the very, at the very outset. And he was fun and had a great sense of humor. And he and I, when we'd run the master calendar court together, we would uh, trade jokes. We'd even joke with the court. Uh, we, uh, I remember a, a person coming up in front of the court. Was, his name was Thomas Edison or something. And uh, I remember Johnny said, wait, I can't find the, uh, I'm not sure what the charge is here. Oh, I'm beginning to see the light, Your Honor. <laughs> And I remember, and I and I I roll my eyes, and the judge said, uh, I remember the judge said uh, a most illuminating remark, Mr. Cochran. I mean, we used to do things like that. It was just uh, just a grand old time. I really had a good time in that office and learned how to try a case. Now, before you joined the office, you said you weren't certain coming out of law school you wanted to practice. What uh, other things did you have in mind then as to how your career path might go? I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, I uh, had been an English major. I was thinking of going to graduate. I went to graduate school in English at Berkeley for a while and then said, now this is even going to be more dreadful. They suck all the creativity out of you in graduate school. And I didn't want to do that. And I played the piano. I was thinking of uh, playing, being a musician. And my parents were <laughs> so fearful. Oh, my God, please, nothing but that. And uh, and I knew that I didn't want to do that because I didn't like to stay up late. I hated cigarette smoke. I didn't drink. And, uh, and I just, uh, that wasn't really going to be the life for me. And... I had some talent, but there were some just brilliant musicians around, and I said, how am I going to compete with these guys? So uh, I knew that I, uh, I think I'd, I'd be better off having a profession. Yeah, those are some versions that would try beset a, a fledgling musician, certainly. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, you know, you could smoke, so the, these places were filled with smoke, sure. and uh, the places you'd play it, and it was great playing. Uh, and some of the musicians were interesting people, but some of them, you know, you couldn't carry on a conversation, even though they'd be brilliant uh, improvisers and really good at music. Uh, they didn't. That was all they knew. And uh, I had much wider interests, so I knew this wasn't a, wasn't a place for me. Okay. Well, then you assumed your place in the legal trade, and not too much later, you uh, assumed a spot on the L.A. Municipal Court bench about, I think, 10 years after you began practicing. Um, yeah. Had that been a goal that you had in mind early on? What uh, what drove you to get to that spot uh, no, with some, not at some all. speed? I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but uh, I wanted to mention one thing in the city attorney's office. I did get to try a case. It was one of the first consumer fraud cases in California. Uh, they, uh, they established a... Uh, a unit with the attorney general's office this was back in the 60s uh, a consumer protection unit and no one had heard of that before and there was a the, a rather well-known real estate uh, person who got into real estate later on uh, who's now deceased but he was pretty well known i won't mention his name um, he had a television repair scam and uh, I worked with the, the AG's office in trying the case and convicted this person. And uh, it was pretty exciting. Uh, the, the press covered it, and it was a big, it was the beginning of consumer protection. And so I felt really good about being a part of that. So uh, then I was in private practice uh, for about 11 years, and uh, I had tried a lot of cases. I was in court a lot. And I had this view about how judges should be. 
and there were some really good judges and there were some terrible judges. And I just sort of had an instinctive feeling, you know, I knew what I would do if I were a judge. And I really felt you had to treat attorneys well and you had a, you know, you had some power, but you had to use it with discretion and care. And, uh, so, um, I knew Jerry Brown and, uh, uh, when he became, uh, uh, governor, I just sent him a one-line letter, a one line in a letter said, Dear Jerry, uh, if you're so inclined, I'd appreciate an appointment to the court, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and eight months later, he, he was, you know, incidentally, when, when he was elected, he did not, um, he wasn't appointing anybody. He was trying to save money. And everybody was saying, is he ever going to fill the, uh, the court? Is he going to ever fill the seats on the court? And so uh, he finally, in August, he uh, he appointed Fran Rothschild to the municipal court in Los Angeles, and uh, I was his second appointment. She was the first, and Elwood Louie. Well, Elwood Louie and I were both appointed. We were the second and third appointments to the Los Angeles municipal court. And we have this big debate. He called us on the same day, but Elwood was sworn in a day before me, so he had uh, he had uh, uh, seniority over me uh, at that time. So anyway, uh, so I, there I was on the court, and then uh, uh, I really felt I was I felt suited for it in this sense. I loved it, and I was uh, the, I became what is known as it was a joke as the king of the traffic court, and I became the supervising judge. And I had tickets translated into Spanish, which had never been done before because I noticed how many foreign-speaking people were being arrested on warrants when they didn't really understand when they had to appear or what the penalties would be. And that, and I started programs, educational programs for drunk drivers. And uh, we, of course, it's not drunk driving, it's driving under the influence, and started educational programs and just really... You know, we were a young Turks, uh, Jerry Brown appointees. We were kids in our 30s who had real views about how to make the system work more for the public. And so I, really, I started community service. Never had been done before. It certainly was a brand new idea. And in fact, I credit Eric Younger. Eric Younger was a judge then. He had been appointed by uh, Reagan uh, prior to uh, that. Uh, but he was pushing community service, and nobody was doing it. So I called him and asked him about it. And uh, so I started programs, and it just happened. And I wanted to credit him uh, with uh, giving me the idea. The idea had been around for for years, decades, but it hadn't been implemented here. So that was a, that was a lot of fun, getting that going and uh, you know starting uh, something new uh, that involved the community. That first assignment, you say the the traffic court assignment, as with with many first judicial assignments, not necessarily regarded as the, as the most desirable post. But you say you loved it right away. Was it the freedom that you were able to do, do things like like you're describing, or what? What did you, did, did you love about it? Well, I'm just saying, you know, you're knowing that you're helping people, you're doing something, and you know, it, and they had rules. You know, you could only come in line to pay your tickets at uh, eight thirty and uh, one thirty or something like that. And I said, why can't I got together with a chief clerk? I said, people should be able to come in whenever they want. I mean, what difference does it make? And, you know, can't we change the system so we can accommodate the public? And the chief clerk who and I saw eye to eye, he was terrific. 
he said, let's do it. I mean, we had lunch and we just did it. I changed the rules and we, and we put it out there for everyone to see. And people could come in and set their cases for trial or pay their tickets anytime during the day. I mean, why not? You know, think you just, you know, we, you know, I was in a position to just, I wanted it to happen and it happened. So, you know, you get a sense of, uh, you know, accomplishment. You're doing something that's helping the public. And, uh, it was very, it was, uh, it gave me a great sense of satisfaction and I just love doing it. Another thing I'm just I'm recalling as we're talking, uh, you know, the municipal court was a court where you can really get things done. Uh, I, you know, um, there was a statute that uh, 647A that made it a crime to uh, solicit a lewd act in a public place. And this, uh, I thought the police department was misusing this statute to lure gay people into just hey, suggesting sex, like, say, in a bar, and they'd arrest them on the spot. And I said, there's something wrong with this. And I, as a municipal court judge, uh, uh, had a number of cases uh, challenging this statute. And everybody decided, at, at that time, incidentally, I was, the, I was running the master calendar court uh, in the uh, criminal division. And... I just had some questions about it, and all the judges decided that I would hear the cases. Somehow I had a couple of them, so um, I ruled as a municipal court judge that the statute was unconstitutional. And uh, the Supreme Court had the same case under review, and they uh, so I ruled it was unconstitutional, and before it could be appealed, the Supreme Court ruled the same way. So I felt really good about that. <laughs> that was one of my crowning achievements, I thought, on the municipal court. I'm sure, yeah, grappling with complex notions of constitutionality are certainly sometimes not always uh, occurring in, in the municipal court level. That's, that sounds great. Yeah, and you know, I wrote my first opinion then, and uh, I remember I was quoted in Playboy for this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Brown Act said consenting adults could do what they wanted in private at the time. So my my rationale, this is a very highly intellectual opinion, you can imagine. My my rationale was if you can do it, you ought to be able to talk about it because it's solicitation, right? It's just saying, hey, do you want to have sex? And they'd arrest them. So my point was <laughs> if you can engage in sex, you ought to be able to talk about it. So uh, that that was my uh, that was my hook. That's great. Not the most profound way to describe, but, you know, I think that summed it up. Sure, certainly, uh, certainly pithy. Um, so now we'll get into a bit more into your your time as a judge and rising through the judicial ranks in a moment. But uh, along the way, you began to to pen a column for the Daily Journal that you've written now for almost thirty years, as I mentioned. Um, what uh, what inspired you to begin contributing these columns to the newspaper that uh, treat all different areas of of law and and life, really? Well, what this turned out uh, the, in in a very strange way. Uh, in those years when I first and prior to my writing the column, the Supreme Court had an annoying habit of depublishing uh, uh, cases. Now, I was on the Court of Appeal then, and, um, and I knew Justice Grodin, who uh, was one of Jerry Brown's appointees, very capable guy. And I remember we were having dinner once, and he said, I'm going to write a law review article about 
about the publication. I said, oh, I've got to I've got to read this one. Uh, and I had not too many, but I had a few of my cases uh, depublished. And my view, I was much opposed to it. My view, and I discussed it with Justice Groden, I don't know if he actually agreed with me, but my view was that the Supreme Court was uh, maybe unconsciously or at times uh, or inadvertently using this device as a way of managing their case flow. And I think if a judge writes an opinion, it should be right or wrong, it should be out there. And uh, and there was a rationale. The rationale was if the case, if the result was right, but the reasoning was wrong, and we don't want to deal with it, we'll just uh, pretend it never happened. Uh, the parties had the case resolved correctly. We don't like the reasoning, and we don't want that reasoning out there. But it seems to me that if you're a public official, you've written something, it should be out there for better or worse. And on the federal system, uh, I think they would decertify a case, but it would still be on the books. You could still see it and see what the rationale is. So I got a call from the, and I knew I had complained about it, and I guess the word got out that I didn't like it. And I got a call from one of the editors at the Daily uh, Journal, and they said, would you write an article on depublication? Uh, and I said, sure, okay. So I wrote an article, and it's in my book, and it's the first column I wrote in 1988. And instead of writing one of these, you know, dreary columns with footnotes and so on, I, I somehow, my creative <laughs> spirit got a hold of me, and I wrote something that was, if you read it, you'll see it's kind of unusual. And it was uh, it was kind of funny as well, and uh, I think the title was "It Never Happened." And um, so I wrote the article, and it uh, there was just a lot of uh, response to it. And uh, so then the Daily Journal said, "Hey, how would you like to write a column, a regular column?" And uh, I think they had really a quite a big response to it. And so I said, "All right, I'll give it a whirl." And uh, we called it under submission. And then I just start writing the column. And then it just <laughs> kept going on. And then, uh, um, and the idea was that, uh, you know, I, it was my particular style and I just had sort of fun doing it. And it became a challenge to see if you could keep doing it. And I know a lot of people had started writing columns and then they drop out after a while. It's really hard to keep it going. But uh, I, see connections between very dissimilar things and I like that's how I generally you know write my columns and so it became a challenge and uh, I just uh, kept doing it. Yeah, your career as a daily journal columnist is quite a, an example of longevity now going on almost 30 years. How do you manage to continue to, to come up with ideas and uh, relay them with your, your humorous style? Who, who knows? <laughs> my wife thinks knows I'm a little bit crazy my uh, my uh, judicial assistant um, uh, uh, Bonnie Edwards, who's in the other room, uh, says he did it again, and the the clerks and the research attorneys come in, and I said, and they look at me and they say, oh my God, your columns do. I said yes, and I've only got two days, or I've got, you know, suddenly I you know I realize it's there, and then suddenly things just pop into my mind. I don't know how it happens. I really don't. It's the, the oddest thing in the world. And sometimes there's a panic that sets in. I, <laughs> you know, I could let a month go by, but it's a challenge. 
And then I, you know, things just hit me. And then I take notes, you know, during the week, something will strike me and I may jot a note down. And, uh, and I like to find kind of connections between very dissimilar things. I think there's a common threads through so many uh, experiences we have that we really not aware of unless we think about it. And sometimes just writing and jotting them down and just starting to write, ideas come to me. I don't know how it happens, but it does. And I keep, you know, plugging away. In addition to, to those columns, you have a, a creative outlet as a, a jazz pianist in the L.A. Lawyers Philharmonic Jazz Ensemble. Are you still p- playing with that group? What, uh, what inspires your affection for music and, and jazz? Well, uh, everyone in my family were were, um, were musicians, and they were musical. And my dad used to play uh, piano. He played the old style, the, the swinging 10th bass. And I was brought up on uh, some of the great jazz uh, musicians. And uh, I, uh, I was I listened to Art Tatum as a kid, and uh, uh, Bud Powell uh, bebop uh, was uh, my my thing. And uh, and uh, I listened to Bill Evans, and uh, a number of musicians really had a tremendous influence on me. I studied harmony and theory with Charlie Shoemake, who's one of the great vibe players and teachers. And I, I have a coach that I see once in a while, that, uh, well, more than once in a while, Terry Trotter, who arranged for uh, some of the top singers, uh, uh, including uh, Natalie Cole, and he's just a wonderful, great pianist. And so um, it's something I've done. So I've been playing with a jazz group, and we've played at some of the top jazz clubs. And uh, the L.A. Lawyers Philharmonic also uh, branched out, and there's a band called the Big Band of Barristers. And I'm in that band. Gary Green, who conducts the Lawyers Philharmonic, also leads that band. We have a terrific arranger, Jerry Ranger, his name is. And we won first place in the United States as the best lawyers band back in Chicago. Uh, the bar, the American bar sponsored it. And uh, they're, perf- they're really good arrangements. And a lot of the guys in the band and women, there's some women in it as well, were professional musicians, were on the road and uh, playing. And they didn't want to starve to death, so they went to law school. So and this is a real lawyers band. Everyone's connected to the law. You know, there's a doctor symphony, and they're mostly ringers in there. There aren't many doctors, so I've been told. But uh, this is the real thing. And the band's really, it's quite a challenge. And we've played at Disney Hall several times and at the Shrine. We have an album out, a CD out. So uh, it's a lot of work. And then I also back the Singers-in-Law, which is a singing group. They're all lawyers. My wife sings in it, Barbara. She's a soprano. She was a court reporter years ago, so she uh, qualifies. And we've played at leading jazz clubs. We played at Vitello's, and they sang the national anthem at the Kings game just last week, uh, which is at the uh, a cappella, and they brought the house down. So I'm rehearsing a lot with, uh, with a group, and I'm in a jazz group with some pretty good musicians. Uh, so that takes a lot of time, too. It's fun, but it's a lot of work as well. But uh, happily, you, of course, the laws have evolved to where I imagine most of the venues you're in are no longer choked with uh, cigarette smoke. So that, that Yeah, that's good. for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, now, over the course of your judicial career, you, you spent most of the time on, on the appellate bench. You spent a few years in, in, in the trial court, but have largely uh, been on 
the appellate court, what um, in your mind are the principal differences between the two roles? And do you um, particularly like the the appellate role more than the trial court role? Well, I do now. You know, when I was a trial judge, I'm sort of a people person, and I ran a fairly relaxed court. I really, I never, I remember when I was first appointed, and my dad was, my parents were, you know, thrilled, obviously. And my dad said, uh, gave me some great advice. He said, remember who you are. And I never forgot that good advice. And another dear friend of mine who was a wonderful lawyer, Bob Rothalo, told me, he says, when people laugh at your jokes, don't believe it. And I sort of kept that in mind and tried to maintain a certain humility and try to remember what it's like practicing law. I think treating, I mean, law, it's so difficult now. Lawyers, my God, they're scrambling all the time. There's so many complex rules, and you're fighting the other side. You're fighting your clients. You don't need to be fighting a judge as well. So, um, and I really uh, enjoyed, you know, I tried to run a relaxed courtroom, but yet be firm enough to know that you can't get away with stuff. And lawyers generally responded quite well to it. We And I thought you run a more efficient court that way. So I love meeting people and having the, you know, the lawyers in court arguing and I'm shooting out questions to them. Uh, and, uh, and I love settling cases, getting in chambers and rolling up your sleeves and sitting down with both sides. It was the, the most gratifying aspect of it. So when the Court of Appeal came up, people said, my God, you're a people person. How are you going to, you're not going to, are you going to want to be in this cloistered ivory tower? Uh, and I had some second thoughts about it. Do I really want to do this when I enjoy trial work so much? But obviously there it was and I took it and I found it to be the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. I just absolutely love what I do. And it's not uh, as cloistered as one would imagine, particularly in my division. I've got great colleagues and we exchange ideas uh, all the time. We walk into each other's chambers. It's an open court. All the research attorneys talk to one another. Anybody can talk to my research attorneys. I talk to my colleagues' research attorneys and them. We walk into each other's chambers. We're exchanging ideas all the time. And uh, the opinions evolve that way. So uh, now I guess I'm getting a little far adrift of your question. The, the difference between the two courts in the trial court, there's less time uh, to ponder a question and less time to craft a statement of decision. Uh, uh, you have to move with some dispatch, but uh, uh, on the court of appeal, we're current. You can't let it <laughs> the case sit forever, but you have some time to let it gel, and you have some time to uh, to talk to other people about it, your other colleagues. A certain time for reflection and a time to look at the ramifications of your decision. You're writing a decision and how are people going to interpret what you've written and how are they going to look at that case for future cases. This has uh, particularly with published opinions. So um, it, it takes a certain time to write a reasoned decision that resolves a legal dispute, and you want to write it with clarity, with just the right number of words, not too many, not too few. And you have less time to craft something of real benefit uh, when you're on the trial court 
than you uh, would uh, obviously if you're on the court of appeal. So I think that's a that, that's a major difference. I'm going to pose a question here that might sound a bit elementary, but it tends to elicit uh, illuminating responses from from appellate justices. I'd be curious to know what you know what how exactly as you conceive it is the role um, of an appellate jurist defined. Well, I think I've said it. The role of an appellate uh, jurist, I think, is, and I said this, is to craft a um, is to craft a reasoned decision that resolves a legal dispute. I mean, that's what we do. We're writing an opinion and resolving a dispute, and we have to write it, as I said, with clarity. We have to write it so people understand it, and they don't have to read a sentence twice to understand what we're saying. And we have to write it in a way that any reasonable person reading it will say, yes, that's what it is. And it's based on these, on this precedent or this statutory law. And it makes sense. And even if you, one disagrees with the opinion, I want a reader to be able to say to me or to anyone else, well, I understand what they said. I may not agree with it, but I understand it. And uh, I think one of the problems we have today is that some of the opinions seem to meander and become too uh, choked full of uh, asides and ambiguities. And uh, what we're trying to do is to uh, achieve a the impossible, and that is a degree of predictability. So people will know how to conduct their affairs in the future based on what we've written and our opinions. As you strive towards that goal of clarity and conciseness, do you have any any justices that you you look to um, that uh, that have have achieved that uh, particular level of judicial quality? Yeah, you know, you you asked me earlier about music, and you said who are your favorites. And so, you know, when you're a jazz musician or any musician, classical musician as well, you want to listen to the greats. Who are the greats? And, you know, Bill Evans is, is an example. Brad Meldow today is, is terrific. I love Herbie Hancock, uh, Kenny Barron. These are great pianists, and I listen to them. I listen to the best, and then you see what they're doing, and you try to understand what they're doing, and maybe uh, you don't want to imitate them, but you want them to inspire you. So when I became an appellate justice, all of a sudden I'm going to be writing opinions. I'm not a trial judge anymore. Uh, what do you do? Who, you look to see who's the best. Who, who's the best out there? Who do you think is really good? So, I mean, I, I looked at Holmes. I looked at Cardozo. I looked at uh, Justice Trainer on the California Supreme Court, uh, Learned Hand. These are, the, these are the great jurists, and what do they have in common? Their philosophy may not always be the same, but what do they have in common? They wrote with clarity, with, uh, with elegance, and they didn't overwrite. They never overwrote. You read trainer opinions, and I mean, uh, whether you agree with trainer or not, I thought he was one of the great jurists of the 20th century. And you read those opinions, and they're nine pages or ten pages, twelve pages. They're, they're not, they don't go on and on forever. And the, the opinions we read today now, I remember reading a, a, jur a journalist was 
writing about a Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court opinion, and he referred to the way the opinion was written as impenetrable prose. And I said to myself, yes, I see what he's, God forbid anybody ever said that about me. They could say it's wrong, <laughs> disagree with it, but I want them to understand it. And, uh, and you know, I've taught some writing courses, and I remember, I'm paraphrasing, but I think it was Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain it simply, you probably don't understand it. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I think a lot of opinions uh, are written by the author to understand. The author is writing the opinion to understand for herself or himself. But once you've done that, then you have to edit and rewrite to be understood. And that's one of my, you know, it's a, it's a message I keep giving myself, uh, whether I fall, I'm sure I fall short of that goal many times, but you know, that's what I'm trying to do. So you look at the best and you see what are they doing? Now I will acknowledge a lot of the statutes that are written today are, my God, they go on forever. They're very complex and it's hard to write an opinion, uh, that explains that. I recall uh, there was a case called People that I wrote called People versus Holt, and it involved a criminal statute, and the statute had 166 words in it. <laughs> one statute, one sentence. I don't mean the statute, one sentence. And I said, my, it was it defied, it it defied comprehension, and so I had to spend some time breaking it down, and and wrote a, a case about it and explained uh, what it meant and how difficult it was and impossible for anyone to carry on any kind of reasoned discourse uh, about what to do with a sentence that's 166 words. I suppose it certainly depends on your source material, to borrow a phrase, just uh, how yeah. pithy and concise one can be. Um, yeah. Do you, are, are there any judicial opinions from history that, that you've regarded with any particular reverence or uh, tend to, to, to reread or look back to? Well, one thing I've written about it ad nauseum in my columns, and I just have so much fun with it, is the Paul's graph case, sure. Cardozo's Paul's graph case. It, it, it is just really one of the masterpieces of, uh, in the literature, and I would call it literature. Uh, the description of what happened and what are the consequences of it? I mean, Mrs. Paul's graph was injured and there was absolute causation and negligence. And you have, I mean, and what is a judge to do? You know, people are talking about judges following the law. We don't want judges making up things. Well, here's Justice Cardozo with the Paul's graph case. And if you would, in this bizarre situation of this chain of events, uh, if you would have liability there, it would be devastating to the, to, nobody could carry on business because cause and effect could go back and back and back in time. So he had to find some way to put the brakes on this so liability wouldn't be extended to the ends of the earth. And he put in foreseeability. And it makes such sense 
and it was so brilliantly crafted. I, I just thought it was a masterpiece. And and it's fun. I mean, just the just the description, you know, of these two guys running to catch the train, and they're and they're and the conductors. I can just see the image in my mind, and the conductors pulling them up, and the fire fireworks fall on the tracks. There's an explosion, and the scales at the end of a platform fall on the on poor Mrs. Paul's graph. I just think the thing is just fabulous. I just love it. I'm 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 I you know just talking to you. I, I think it would be a lot of fun to write a short story about it, about what Mrs. Paul's graph did, where she was before, where she was going, what happened. <laughs> you just gave me a creative idea. Well, that's great. I'll look forward to, to reading that one then. You, you, you certainly do cite that opinion in, in some of your columns. I'd like to touch on maybe a couple of them um, for a moment. You, you mentioned your original column like from 1988 being a, uh, a piece encouraging the California Supreme Court to quit its practice of automatically depublishing intermediate appellate opinions. Of course, last summer they did just that. Um, were you especially pleased knowing that uh, maybe it was belated, but the California Supreme Court did finally take your advice and abandon that practice? Yes, I'm, I'm thrilled with it, of course. And uh, I have a feeling that my column had absolutely nothing to do with it. <laughs> but uh, though I know, I know many of the justices do read uh, my column because I get emails from them all the time. <laughs> So, uh, uh, but I don't know if they read that one. Perhaps they did. Um, uh, they, they have a new rule that I'm not too thrilled about, and I think I'm going to write more extensively about it. Uh, and that's the rule when there's a petition for review, um, a judge and review is denied. The dissenting judge can write actually the dissent and publish it uh, in the reports right next to the opinion. And I think that's a terrible practice. I'm really very much opposed to that. And I'm going to write more about it. Uh, I think it, um, uh, you know, I think writing, it, it, it almost looks like a dissent. And I think it detracts from the published opinion. And uh, I think uh, they haven't, uh, the justice who has written the dissent will not have had the benefit of this, of, uh, of, a, say, a majority opinion or an opinion from one of her or his colleagues on the Supreme Court, which may temper how that dissent would be written. And so I think it doesn't help the development of the law. I think it's okay to write a little paragraph somewhere about why you think the um, case should be, uh, uh, why the case should be reviewed. Uh, that would be good because indicate what the issues are, but that should be published somewhere else, not in the reports right next to the opinion that you would like to review. I, I'm very much opposed to that. What do you think the, the legal purpose or just the general purpose is for, for that rule of having those dissents created and having them exist in a space where they don't, I'm not really sure exactly what legal weight they, they entail. Well, they, they may not have any legal weight but, uh, and, you know, I mean, I can see that there's always an argument on the other side and, and, and I can see it fosters some discussion about, about the, uh, about the case, uh, it gets some, uh, discussions about other points of view, but it, you know, they all, but the problem with it, it almost functions as kind of a, uh, as a shadow dissent. And it's coming from a higher court, from a from a respected uh, uh, justice on the Supreme Court, 
And I think what that does is tends to undermine the case that is the law in California. And then I can see lawyers, you know, giving less credence to that uh, case maybe. And uh, when they cite it uh, and say another side uh, uh, disagrees with the case, they're going to be pointing out that one of the justices on the court doesn't agree with it or two don't. And uh, I just think it's not healthy for the development of the law. You know, the case didn't, you can, you know, I can see a published, uh, you know, a few paragraphs. These issues are important and we should discuss them. That's one thing. But uh, I've read a a couple uh, which uh, really amounts to a dissent attacking the Court of Appeal opinion. And I don't think that's good. Even even if I would agree with it, even if I would agree with that particular dissent or yeah dissenting view about on review. Okay, and now in, in another pair of recent columns, he touched on a a theme of folks in the legal trade, be them attorneys or, or judges, maybe assuming or advocating for or ruling in favor of positions that they might personally have problems with. And in that column, you noticed um, or you, you mentioned disapprovingly a anecdote about. I think at least some law students from NYU who had yeah, um, yeah. refused to to participate in a moot court because they were assigned a position they found morally problematic, uh, an anti-LGBT position. Um, what, yeah, in your opinion, yeah. is is so important about folks um, ensuring that they 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 do what, whatever their personal qualms may be, um, still advocate a rule um, for positions they might find problematic that are legally. Um, Correct. And has that happened to you where you've made a ruling where you didn't like it? Oh, but, yeah, sure. All uh, the time. But it was right. All yeah. the time. Happens all the time. And if you can't do that, then you better get out of it. Get a, You can't be a judge. I've had friends of mine who wanted to be on the court. And one friend said, well, I'm uh, unalterably opposed to the death penalty. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm opposed. I don't like the death penalty. I think it's not... Uh, it's not imposed uh, across the boards. If uh, the wealthy don't get it, the poor do, so on. There's lots of problems with it. Uh, and I said, well, then I guess you better not apply for a judgeship. Because if you're assigned a criminal assignment, you don't get to say, well, I'm not going to do these cases. And I had friends uh, on the municip- when I was on the municipal court. I thought the way the, um, I thought prostitution, for example, uh, the way uh, the cases were, uh, you know, I, I, I felt this was, I wouldn't call it a victimless crime necessarily, and uh, it's not a healthy thing, but if we're going to have it, maybe we should change the way we, uh, the, the laws are structured. But I, I found people guilty of it, and, I'll, and I'm telling you right up front, I was absolutely opposed to the three strikes law. I thought it was uh, poorly conceived, and we're, we're seeing the fruits of that now. And I don't think I reversed. I've had, I bet I've had thousands of three strikes cases. I have not reversed one. I, I don't think I reversed one. I've affirmed them. I'm against it, but that's what the law is, and that's what we follow. Now, it's true. There's, uh, there's room where uh, the judges may reach out and say under present circumstances there's something wrong here and if you can write a reasoned opinion uh, uh, within the structures of the law then fine Uh, but so you know that's going to happen all the time and so for these kids in in school to say well we're against it we're not going to do it well listen if you're going to be a good lawyer you should do that 
You should take the opposite side. That'll make you better at what <laughs> in representing the other side. And Nat Hentoff had read, I guess, read my column, and he had written about it, and so he cited uh, it extensively in his book on uh, the First Amendment, Freedom for Me But Not for Thee, which I thought was an apt title. Yeah. Is this something that you think has become more common, that folks might yeah, cleave yeah. more more doggedly to a, a moral position, whether or not, in fact, the societal, the, the law is perhaps different? Is that something that's more common now? Yeah. Sure. Don't you think so? You see it everywhere. It's sure. going on with the current uh, hearings over the Supreme Court justice. Uh, and it's becoming so ideological now, it's really a shame. Uh, I'm really sickened by the whole process. And uh, the, the Supreme Court is becoming, well, it, maybe it always was a political, it's, it's a political, it's a third branch of, of government, but it, uh, it's a political entity. That doesn't mean it's bad, but it's becoming, uh, there's an ideological rift now where presidents are looking for someone that is going to so match their their ideology that they're going to appoint those kinds of people that agree with them. Well, I think that's common. That's happened a lot. But now the bitter partisanship that's going on over the appointment process, I think, is very discouraging. Really makes me worry. Yeah, I wanted to address some of the current events that, as we're discussing here, um, this is nominally and substantively a law podcast, but um, law and politics certainly do intersect from time to time. I, you know, one common criticism that folks will lob against the appellate judiciary, um, most often when there's maybe a Supreme Court ruling that comes down that's five to four on a very important and salient social question like gay marriage or abortion or gun rights or things like that. Yeah. Um, and also in the context that we have presently where there's just a very, very politicized uh, judicial appointment process. Uh, and people will say, well, the courts are no more than judges, or I'm sorry, politicians in robes. Or another complaint would be that it's undemocratic to have a small unelected group decide very important yeah. societal questions. Yeah. Um, as an appellate jurist yourself, uh, what are your thoughts when you hear those questions that or those complaints that, that do recur? And how would you respond to someone airing them? Well, sometimes you need a court to decide questions that politicians can't decide because of uh, the kind of partisanship that goes on. We wouldn't have had Brown versus Board of Education uh, had we not had a Supreme Court to make that decision. Uh, so that's going to happen all the time. Justice Rehnquist, uh, the Chief Justice, who was certainly no liberal, uh, he could have uh, voted to overturn uh, the Miranda case. And he said, that's part of our established jurisprudence. I'm not going to do that. So I think generally the justices make every attempt to um, to follow precedent and not to reach out unless it's absolutely necessary. And I think a lot of scholars have said, thank goodness we had a Supreme Court because uh, Brown versus Board of Education would not have been decided by the legislature. Uh, sometimes the court has to be there to take the heat. And I remember Earl Warren, he was a Republican uh, governor of California, and uh, he got on the court, and you know, some there was a lot of controversy. I remember when he was appointed, and uh, in California, there were signs along the highway that said "Impeach Earl Warren," and he became he became one of our great uh, jurists. And so there's going to be this tension. It's going to happen. People aren't going to be always pleased with it. 
but if the court uh, becomes less than an equal branch of government, I think our democracy is going to crumble. Yeah, I wanted to, to get into the competing branches of government and how they're functioning presently. That particular criticism that the judiciary is politically motivated and no more, um, that criticism has been issued from the executive branch of government, of course, with some fervency over the past couple of months. Um, in, in your view, is that, a, is that a problematic thing? Is that rhetorical buffeting, putting undue strain on the Constitution? Or alternatively, could you just read it as an example of the built-in intrinsic feature of the Constitution where there are competing branches of government and they check each other? Well, I think uh, I'd like to think it's more the latter because uh, I remember uh, when uh, President Obama uh, made a, a crack about, <laughs> about Citizens United in his State of the Union message. And uh, I remember Justice Alito was very upset about that. Uh, I think it would have been better had he not done that and I think it would be better if uh, the current administration didn't do the same thing. Um, you know, uh, one of the, uh, when I give talks often, I will refer to uh, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and uh, by Shakespeare. And uh, there's a uh, revolution brewing, and they want to upset the established order. And uh, uh, Jack Cade is a revolutionary, and he's talking to a group of people. And uh, somebody from the, uh, the rabble yells out, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. And you'll see that in lawyers' offices. Sometimes they'll have that up there. And they're not really, a, you know, I guess they're trying to show their clients, hey, I'm a tough lawyer, you know. But I think I'll fight for your cause. But I think the very theme of that play and that message is if we want to kill the established order, if we want to sow chaos, what we have to do is um, is uh, destroy the legal institutions, the lawyers, the judges, uh, the system we have in place to settle disputes, and uh, and so uh, you know that's how I respond to people. You don't have to agree with every opinion, and people have strong religious and political views about things. I mean, when Brown versus Board of Education was decided, there were riots. They had to send. They had to send the militia down to the south so kids could go to school. I mean, it was we thought it was almost like a civil war, and somehow we did survive it, didn't we? And now nobody thinks about this at all. There's certainly racists around in, in all parts of society, but now it's a whole different world. We just take it for granted. So uh, what I'm saying, the courts aren't strong. Whatever what other branch of government may say about it. Uh, our whole system depends upon the strength of those three branches of government. And the thing that what worries me is that, at least in the past when I was younger, there seemed to me to be an understanding that government had to work. That no matter how partisan people were, legislators generally would sit down, they'd go have a drink after work, <laughs> get, a, get a napkin out, and do some horse trading and work out something because they knew government had to work. That's what we're here to do. And now there seems to be a, um, a move to tear it, tear it down. And that's what makes me very discouraged. Yeah. I mean, I don't but think, I think the, we'll, I think we'll survive. Yeah. I, I doubt anyone would claim, you know, the federal judiciary is being just 
destroyed, but it, I'm not sure if you could say it's really been working this past year when it's the Supreme Court has been down a member after Justice Scalia's passing. And um, for different right. political reasons, the seat has remained vacant just now yeah. this week, I believe. The, the Democrats and the, the Senate will move to filibuster the nominee. Um, I guess it just as a, a jurist yourself watching these things going on, how, how do you view them? I view them with dismay. Uh, I think that Garland, obviously, I mean, he was conservative. Uh, there was uh, he he had full he had the full vote of the Senate when he was up for the uh, for the D.C. Circuit, and all of a sudden we're not even going to give him a hearing uh, on this fabricated uh, notion that it's uh, uh, Obama's last year in office. Yet there was it was almost a year to go for the. I mean, anyone would that that was just abs- absolutely an outrage. And uh, and uh, it's a shame that we have uh, just uh, Judge Gorsuch, who is certainly capable, quite conservative. Uh, you know, he's sort of the hapless guy there. Uh, and uh, the Democrats are saying, hey, look at it. Uh, they're getting away with uh, these kinds of tactics. We're going to have to do the same. So if the nuclear option is... Uh, is uh, the way to go. Uh, I guess we're going to have uh, a different kind of nomination process in the future. Uh, so I'm really quite concerned about it. Well, let's end, end this portion of our chat about the judicial trade on, on a more positive note. Can you tell me your, your favorite thing um, about being a judge? What's, what's the best thing about being a, an appellate jurist? Well, what I like, and I always have about being a judge, is that you're given the... Um, really uh, awesome responsibility but of bringing a conflict to resolution uh for better or worse you're ending the dispute and you're doing it uh in a civilized way you're doing it with people in a courthouse not out on the battlefield and you're considering different points of view and you're finding a way to make a resolution of this dispute and uh and it allows people to uh, get on with their lives, and uh, and it taxes the particular judge uh, to do it in a fair, decent way, and in a way, in an opinion, uh, by way of an opinion, that one hopes you've written uh, with clarity uh, and with reason, in which the losing side could at least understand the rationale behind it, whether they agree with it or not. I didn't want to close with a, a few thoughts that you could provide to our listeners. Um, and I'm sure many of them are appellate counselors and would be curious to know some of your thoughts as to the best appellate practices they could bring to bear. So um, let's talk about uh, attorney filings, briefs, and the like. When um, you've written in a, a recent column and you've mentioned in our conversation that um, – it's important to be concise and to use an economy of words and understand um, just the effect what you're putting on the page has. I guess that you said that you prize conciseness um, in, in attorney filings. What are the most effective traits that uh, attorney filings before you tend to share? Well, look, what I think lawyers have to think about, and the really good appellate lawyers know this, is you're writing for a reader. And, and I always, when I was practicing law, I pretended I was the judge in what I'd want to get from the lawyer. Now, we're reading thousands of words a day. It's like reading War and Peace every day, but it's not as interesting. 
<laughs> the characters aren't as interesting. And you have to think of what your audience is. So if you're going to throw in a bunch of adjectives telling me how ridiculous the opinions of the other side are, you're going to lose me immediately, and I'm, I'm not going to give much credence to what you're, what you're saying. What's going to work for me is you've got to tell me what happened. First of all, what happened? And you have to be absolutely correct in those facts. You can't fudge on them. If there are facts against you, boy, put it out there. Tell me what happened and then why you deserve to win. And when you're saying why you deserve to win, there can be equity and fairness involved, yes, but there's the law involved. And you, when, you, when lawyers cite cases, they, they have to be absolutely certain. What is the holding of the case? I see briefs in which they're citing cases that work against them or they're misstating what the case says. How foolish. I mean, you have to give me some credit. If you don't think the judge is smart, you know that other people around the judge are going to be smart. They're going to figure that out. And uh, so I think it's a good idea to go through and cut out the adjectives. Cut out the adjectives that are demeaning to the other side. And uh, if you have a good argument, I will know. I will draw the conclusion that the other side's wrong without you telling me uh, how foolish or stupid they are. So you're powered by nouns and verbs, accuracy and clarity. And if the law is against you, well, then tell us why the law should change and how you could change it and why it should happen and how I could write it. Often lawyers will come in oral argument and they'll be saying, telling me how unfair and everything is. And I'll say to them, well, how do I write it? How do I write that when I have such and such case that says so-and-so? Do I say the case is wrong? Do I distinguish it? How? And, uh, you know, so if you keep those thoughts in mind and keep in, keep in mind that I'm reading just thousands of pages so I don't want to go through a, 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 a lot of um, uh, uh, words that are excess and surplusage that don't add to anything. Uh, a good, tight, concise brief that's, uh, re, that you've re rewritten a few times is uh, going to be far better than uh, some of these long, uh, um, ambling, uh, meandering briefs uh, filled with adjectives um, uh, denigrating uh, the other side. Uh, in terms of oral argument, when when attorneys bring their arguments to your court to to make their cases, uh, do the same general principles apply that you want them to be straightforward and honest and not uh, denigrate the other side? And what are what are the most important things attorneys should keep in mind in, during oral oral argument? Well, they should keep in mind they know that we've read the briefs. I even tell them at the head of the argument. I said, you know, we've read the brief. We've we've had conferences. We've discussed this. So. Uh, so uh, present your oral argument accordingly. In other words, don't say this is a case of where <laughs> once we had this long, huge case on an environmental impact report. We spent a couple of months on it. It was very comp a lot of issues. And I remember the lawyer came to court and said, Your Honor, this case involves an environmental impact report. And I probably shouldn't have. And I said, oh, that's what the case is about. And everybody, we all start laughing. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that, but we know that. Here's the problem I've got. And then we went into it. And even the lawyer smiled, you know. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the point is they know we've read the briefs. You know, one of the good. And so hit the high point. 
you know, the point that you think is really important. So I understand that such and such case says this, but here's, I just want to emphasize such and such. And many lawyers will say, are there any questions? Uh, does your honor have any concerns about issue about the issue involving the um, equi- the equitable indemnity uh, point? Because that may be a sticking point. And say what we wanted to what we want to emphasize is and such and such. You know, they get to it right away. The really good lawyers usually can cover it in ten to fifteen minutes. The ones that ramble on and on and on and on get to be too much, uh, and they lose the court. And uh, and they can usually tell by our questions, not always, where we're going. And I try to be uh, pretty open. We're a fairly active court. So I usually tell them up front what my problems are uh, or what I think of the case. Uh, maybe just one last one. I suppose if you, if you could impart one bit of wisdom or one, one thing into an, an attorney's mind that appears before you that perhaps you – see commonly attorneys not knowing. There's one thing you wish every attorney knew when he or she comes into your courtroom. What would that be? I think um, I would say um, a sense of respect for the enterprise that they're involved in. Uh, They're a profession and that they should act like a professional and treat their opponent with respect and treat the court with respect uh, that doesn't mean being overly formal, but it means um, presenting yourself as a um, as a professional uh, who is privileged to uh, be part of that profession, uh, involving uh, disputes that can be resolved in a civilized manner in a court of law. Justice Gilbert, I'm cognizant that you've been tremendously generous with your time. I'm sure you have opinions to write and, and, a, and a column, perhaps, to write. As well, so I should yeah, let you I go. Uh, but thanks very much for being on the podcast to, to chat about all these different uh, issues. I r- really appreciate it. Okay, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed it, Brian. Thanks a lot. And with that, our program for April 7th, 2017 is complete. Don't forget that CLE credit is available for listeners of the show. Just find a short true-false test that's linked on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>